This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today I'll be talking to the author of Politics of Empowerment, Disability Rights, and the Cycle of American Policy Reform. The author is David Pen- Petanicchio. David, did I do it right? You did it right. Oh, good. Oh, good. The book, the really, really interesting book, David's really interesting book, is published by Stanford University Press, and I have the pleasure to have him on the line today. David, how are you? I'm great, and uh, it's great uh, being here with you to talk about this uh, book. Yeah, I really, uh, I really learned a lot about um, a subject matter that I thought I knew some things about, but I really didn't know in in the way that you approached it. And so I've been excited to to have this conversation about it. Uh, before we get to talking about the work, uh, maybe you could just tell us a little bit more about yourself. Sure. Um, so I'm an assistant professor of sociology at the University of Toronto um, and um, hopefully soon to be associate professor. Um, I have been at U of T for six years, but before that I had a two-year postdoc at um, the University of Oxford at Nuffield College, which was a really great experience because um, it's where the book really, the idea for the book really evolved particularly because I got an opportunity to talk to so many different people in so many different disciplines while I was there. Um, and before that, I was a graduate student at the University of Washington. Uh, I usually get asked why I wrote about the United States, but I mean, I was trained in the United States, even though I'm Canadian. And um, it, it, it's actually a really interesting American case that tells us a lot about um, policymaking. Uh, so um, I, I'm just really glad that... Uh, that the book came out the way it did. And, um, and it's also, I think while it takes on a historical sort of approach, it definitely speaks to issues that are, um, ongoing and that are, I think, salient today. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, um, you know, so as, as you note, the, uh, for a subject that, um, I think many, many people would think of in sort of some narrow terms, it really does speak to some larger themes and, you know, just right at the start of the book, uh, you write, that that disability policy has always had a place on the American policy agenda. I think this statement, it would be surprising for many because I think we might think about disability policy as, as really a contemporary policy debate. You view this a little bit differently. Um, how far back does this policy area go in the United States? Um, I think this is a really great question. And, and, it, and I think to, to a lot of people, it's surprising. But I think to, to American scholars or scholars who study the American welfare state, maybe, I don't know, maybe it's not as surprising. But this is one of the dimensions of the disability case that make it so interesting, right? Um, 
unlike a lot of issues, I think what I say in the book or what I, what one of the, the, the themes in the book is that it, it's had such a long history of being on the policy agenda. And in fact, really the first three chapters of the book really get into uh, how disability policy evolved alongside the American welfare state. And in fact, I, I argue in, in, in one of the chapters that uh, things like vocational rehabilitation, which came about in the 1920s, really served as a model for social policy in the 1960s. Um, and, and so I like to think of disability policy as sort of in some ways being influenced by the sort of piecemeal way that uh, the, that the American welfare state came about, right? That it, its primary focus was to address the people who, or the groups that legislators saw as the most deserving. I think people with disabilities are part of that community. Um, so in that sense, I think it, 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 it makes, it, it isn't as surprising to know that. Um, but I think it, it might be interesting to, 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 to readers to, to sort of know about that kind of incremental long-term sort of process that got us from something like vocational rehabilitation to policies that I think more people are familiar with, like, for example, uh, the Americans with Disabilities Act, right? And so the book really takes on this historical approach. And um, while, the, while I think it's one of the really interesting features of the case, I think it's also interesting that uh, it, one of the challenges in understanding how rights got onto the policy agenda was to understand what it did to this pre-existing context or way of dealing with disability. Um, and one of the things that I find interesting is that rights didn't supplant or replace the kind of service provision model that had had been in place for decades, but it kind of was merged into this pre-existing service provision model. And I think if, if for readers of the book, I think they'll see this, that that actually had really profound implications for how disability rights legislation ultimately evolved and what it meant for policy outcomes and also what it meant for efforts to cut back on those policies. So I think it's all, these, these things are all related, right? This evolution, the fact that disability is an old issue that's always had a place on the policy agenda. These things matter. It matters to know these things for understanding basically where we are today on the issue of disability rights. So much of the book, is, as you sort of just kind of summarize, looks at this shift from the approach to disability policy in the early part of the 20th century to the later part of the 20th century. And I wonder if we can start with that early time period first. Oh, what is the central law that defines the policy in the 1920s? And, and what does it do exactly? So... I think one of the I think it's important to sort of um, note that I, when I originally sort of embarked on this project, I didn't think really that I would get that far back into uh, the history of disability policy. I, I really thought I was going to start with basically the maybe the end of the 1950s and early 1960s. But what became clear to me was that a lot of the 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 the, the political discourse, the 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 focus on legislation in the 50s and 60s. Uh, you couldn't really make a lot of sense of that without knowing what legislators were already contending with. And that sort of begins, I think, that the, the really big first true policy innovation was the 1920 Vocational Rehabilitation Act, which made vocational rehabilitation services uh, you know, uh, available to non-veteran people with disabilities. 
And this program, I mean, it continues to exist. It, it's been, you know, renewed decades upon decades. I mean, it's a. It really began, I think, a very important shift in the way government, the federal government, dealt with people with disabilities. And on the one hand, I think one of the reasons why I, I go back to the twenties and and look a lot at the the period leading up to the 60s, so specifically the 40s and 50s, which I would call you know, the heyday of rehabilitation policy, is that it tells us a lot about how, how legislators were thinking about disability and you know, what kinds of institutions they were setting, they were setting up, right? So, so for example, while the focus was on providing these kinds of social services and, and, and it didn't necessarily mean that they were not talking about the, the more medical aspects of disability, what people would, what, what, what I, some people have called rehabilitationists, but what I call basically political elites or political entrepreneurs, what they saw as the main issue was people with disabilities are being excluded from important areas of, of life. And rehabilitation is an important way to get people with disabilities into the mainstream of life. And it also meant that they were providing an alternative way to think about disability that didn't require sending people with disabilities into isolating asylums uh, or, or warehousing them in, in, in residential facilities. So very early on, you already start getting this kind of sense that legislators uh, were seeing the problem of disability as more than just one of cure or one of pity. Uh, I, those, those things were still there, but you start to see the beginnings of this transition away from that model. And, and what I argue in the book is, you know, there's this debate or I don't know if it's a debate or a conversation, let's say, and political science and in sociology as well about, you know, how does change come about, right? Does change, does significant change come about through these sort of bursts, you know, uh, dramatic bursts, or does it come about through sort of these incremental processes? And disability really brings that conversation to the fore by, by actually showing you that you actually need both of those things. In fact, a lot of the kinds of conversations that preceded uh, the, the discussion of rights um, were important in getting people to, to the place of talking about rights. So for example, the idea of discrimination. Actually, legislators well before a minority rights, civil rights framework was available for people with disabilities, were already talking about discrimination. They weren't talking about it as a, as a rights issue. They were talking about it, about it as a rehabilitation issue. Uh, what, what does that mean? Well, for example, um, it, it makes very little sense to spend a lot of money, of uh, public money, to on programs that are supposed to get people with disabilities into the labor market when they're experiencing so much discrimination in the labor market. It sort of defeats the whole point of rehabilitation. So they framed the focus, particularly in the late fifties and early and, and in the nineteen sixties, the issue of discrimination as an as a rehabilitation service provision kind of problem. But that language became very important later on when new opportunities emerged for legislators to sort of pick up and kind of really go with this kind of rights framework. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. 
Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Now, now things begin to change, as, as you know, in the 1960s. And much of this has to do with whether disability policy will or will not be linked with the civil rights movement and, and ultimately the, the civil rights bills. What is this interplay between these two related but but distinct policy concerns and and uh, does disability policy ultimately get grafted onto that civil rights bill in the 1960s? Uh, well, the short answer is no, and it's actually a really important part of the disability rights struggle. Um, but just to go, just to sort of put some context around that, I mean, one of the the, the things that's interesting about disability and, and sort of particularly in terms of understanding the relationship between institutions and policymakers is that a lot of policymakers who are working on disability issues in that period of time, the 50s and the 60s, you know, they were also involved in other policy areas. So it does make sense for, for some to take the idea of rights that was being sort of talked about in other policy circles and bring it to bear on the issue of disability. But until the 1960s, until the late 1960s, I mean, a lot of, let's call them left-leaning or liberal uh uh, policymakers were really confronted with an with a series of institutional obstacles, uh, not least of which was that the committee system was such that it favored conservative senior Democrats that kept a lot of social policy issues kind of at bay. And when that sort of loose, started to loosen up, there were new opportunities for these I call them disability rights entrepreneurs to to take the issue of, of of civil rights and apply it to disability. And your question about whether or not it got grafted onto the Civil Rights Act, well, it didn't. In fact, one of the first attempts to expand civil rights to people with disabilities failed. Uh, Hubert Humphrey and Charles Vanek introduced a bill in 1970 uh, or 71 uh, to amend the Civil Rights Act, but that bill went nowhere. But that's but. But what I think is interesting about why the, why I use the term entrepreneur is because they found other ways uh, to get rights onto the agenda, and that was through vocational rehabilitation. The Vocational Rehabilitation Act was up for renewal, as it you know pre- periodically is, and they basically tacked on that pretty much the language that was in that original amendment that failed. They tacked that onto this vocational rehabilitation bill that otherwise had absolutely nothing to do with civil rights. So. So this is a this is a very important pivotal moment for the disability rights uh, story because you know it, there is a path dependent story here. This is where you get the what people call the, the development of a separate and unequal system of rights, um, which actually is a really big part of knowing about why retrenchment takes place the way it does and why things like the ADA continue to face all these obstacles and challenges. For a lot of activists and also, and also scholars, the, the reason why this happens is because disability rights doesn't get the full protection from the Civil Rights Act and the civil rights community more generally. Uh, and it all kind of starts with this moment in the late 60s and early 70s where disability takes on this disability rights takes on this other trajectory 
Now, not to get too far into the weeds of this, and I'm not sure if this is what you were alluding to just now, but it's Section 504 Correct. of the 1972 Rehabilitation, Rehabilitation Act that is so critical to understand this turn. Um, what briefly is this section all about? And what does it do to reposition this policy from what it had been to something new? Uh, so when section so originally when the Rehabilitation Act uh, was the the amendments were introduced, there was no section five hundred four. There was actually no language of rights in that in that uh, in that bill. Uh, in fact, a lot of that rights language in section five hundred four, which is the anti discrimination provision. Um, was tacked on out, 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 outside the committee process, outside of the hearings process. So, so I think that's also very interesting, right? That uh, it's not that the bill was the the amendment was introduced with Section Five Hundred Four in it. Section Five Hundred Four was added later um, it, through sort of the you know discussions around that legislation. And the reason why this is important is because disability rights now intersected with numerous other policy areas because the Rehabilitation Act basically required that uh, discrim- made discrimination illegal in all f- sort of federal government related areas, including um, uh, including contracts that are, I think, of, at, at, that, at that time were more than $10,000. So this is a huge area. It means that public educational institutions, public transit, right? These areas now had to subscribe to regulations that required that they non- not discriminate and be accessible. Um, and not surprisingly, the very f- the first two sectors that, let's say, rebelled against these anti-discrimination provisions were, of course, the public educational sector and public transit, uh, because they just didn't see this as a feasible or efficient way to, to address the, the needs of people with disabilities, um, and so, and this is important because you know regulations didn't get signed until about you know five years after the bill was actually passed because it was such backlash, and and the administration, both Ford and Carter, um, didn't really know what these regulations would actually look like, um, and so so this is a really important and telling feature of the way opposition evolved following Section 504. It wasn't really about the law. It was about its implementation. So, and and as you sort of just described there, um, as we get this shift uh, from the service provision model to the the rights-based approach, you suggest that in some ways, paradoxically, this opens the policy area up to new threats, especially concerns about, about cost. So what happens um, next in the politics of disability rights, especially as we move into the 1980s and, and Reagan era policymaking? Yeah, I, and I, th- I think this is um, this is where I think one of the, the strengths of the book lies is is situating the emergence of this disability rights movement in this broader political context, and I think you can't really understand the the way that disability rights movement evolved without understanding. The important role that threat to existing legislation and threats of retrenchment had on the disability struggle. Of course, the way that dis- the opponents to disability rights framed their opposition was that this is an ineff- that rights are inefficient, 
that they're costly and that, that they produce unintended outcomes um, and that, that, that basically they, it would take away from everybody else, right? That focusing so much time and effort in this inefficient practice of, of making everything inclusive would make things worse for everybody. And that argument picked up steam in the late 70s, well before Reagan was in power, but throughout the 80s really took on a, a, a life of its own, particularly the early, the, the, throughout Reagan's first term. Um, I mean, and that wasn't and that wasn't just people with disabilities or disability rights, right? The entire civil rights struggle uh, kind of hit a, a wall in that period of time. Uh, and so here's where the disability rights movement becomes really important. You know, yes, the movement, the, 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 the focus on rights what began as a movement in the government and for, for a long time sort of stayed within those policy circles. But the disability rights movement played a huge role in bringing that issue to everyday people, uh, to understand the plight of people with disabilities. So when institutional activists or political, political entrepreneurs or sympathetic, you know, sympathetic uh, policymakers really ran into some up, uh, roadblocks within the government, the disability rights movement was really important in getting an, in, in um, uh, enacting pressure from the outside to, to, to make sure that the government is going to keep its promise on the issue of disability rights and that the regular, that the the public is aware of the kinds of problems that people with disabilities face. You know, the 1980s, you've got these really important protests uh, around public transit, right? And I mean, I go into a little bit in the book that a lot of those protests really brought to light these, these problems that, you know, everyday people otherwise wouldn't really be thinking about that. And then in the 1990s, you know, you've got protests against the nursing home industry. Again, this is an ongoing issue right now with the Met, with the uh, Medicare, Medicaid and Medicare, uh, 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 home care problem, right? Where, you know, people with disabilities are, st- the, the nursing home industries are still biased in terms of giving, um, getting Medicaid funding uh, compared to home care, right? These are long, long established issues. But in the 90s, you really see this, the rise of protest, you know, targeting this, this very important rights issue of institutionalization, right? So you see how you get this really um, dynamic, this important dynamic between what was once seen as a facilitative environment for disability rights really becoming, uh, you know, antagonistic and how disability, the citizens, everyday people, activists really changed their rhetoric, changed their strategy to address this antagonistic, uh, these, this, this antagonistic government, right? Um, and, and they broadened their focus to not just Congress, but to state legislatures, to looking at to, to the judiciary, which had become increasingly problematic to, to people with disabilities. Um, and so I, I think you, that's a, an important part of understanding the relationship between policy and policy and politics and social movements is understanding this kind of relationship that, you know, is very dynamic. It's not static, right? I mean, sometimes people, will be, uh, citizens find opportunities in the government to, 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 you know, to get legislation passed and et cetera. And sometimes they, they are mobilizing to protect those things that already exist, right? And I think disability is one of those cases where you already had rights legislation when the disability rights movement really picked up steam and, and mobilized uh, against the government. Yeah, the, the book, the really interesting book is, is titled uh, Politics of Empowerment, Disability Rights and the Cycle of American Policy Reform. Uh, David's book is published uh, by Stanford University Press this year. Uh, And and David, thank you so much uh, for coming on the podcast. 
Uh, thank you. It was uh, really wonderful to talk about the book and uh, happy holidays to everybody. <laughs>